been in a we've been in a series called You Ask for It. Do you guys familiar with the series at this point or Okay, so we, we, we wanted to hear from you and we've been doing this for the past few years on Easter weekend where we ask you to tell us what you would like us to preach on. And as we were compiling the results, the wonderful Chantel was the compiling the results. Can we all thank Chantel for all the work that she did? <clears throat> Chantel, she does a lot of stuff behind the scenes that, oh my goodness, if you knew. But as we were compiling the results, we found that the second highest request of all the requests, the topic was relationships. And of those requests that were relating to relationships, a huge amount of them was about, were about marriage. Now, I don't want everyone who's single in the room for your stomach to drop all of a sudden. You're like, oh my gosh, I came on the wrong weekend. Feel me, feel me, okay? We are gonna talk about marriage today, but I believe with everything inside of me, that God absolutely has something for you in this message. Please, please know that what we're preaching is the scriptures, not a marriage self-help thing. This, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not going to just preach about, you know, five steps to a better marriage. We're going to preach the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even between soul and spirit. So whether you're single, you're married, you're divorced, or any other marital status that is possible, which I don't think there is any, God's going to speak to you tonight. Do you believe that? <clears throat> All right. All right. Before we jump into the word, I want to introduce you to my wife. Ding. It's okay. I served in the creative department for many years. And so we have this special connection where um, I don't hate on them and they get the picture up. It's all good. How many of you guys know what my wife looks like? Come on, that's going to work. Micaiah Hope Owens, that's her name. She is, she doesn't like it when I call her this, but I love to call her this. I I say, I call her, she's the wife of my youth. And the reason why I say that is because it actually comes from Proverbs chapter five. She is the wife of my youth. We were married, married at 22 and 19, pretty fresh, pretty fresh. I'm telling you, if I would, if I could have married her earlier, I would have. But I was waiting on the order of things, you know. I wanted to get her mom and dad's blessing. You know, I wanted them to be cool with it. I didn't want to be starting out on shaky ground outside of submission to the structures that God has in place. That's another topic. Actually, it is this topic, but it's just coming from another angle. (laughs) We have um, just, it's been such, oh my gosh, I wish I could tell you how wonderful it is to be married to my wife. We have a beautiful son. His name is Jameson. I don't have a picture of him today. But then again, I don't, also don't have a picture of my wife. So you're not missing too much. My son is about a year and a half. And um, wow, he is just absolutely a little, just a bowl of light. And God has blessed us with, with just a life that is richer and fuller than I, could have, than I could have ever asked. And, you know, the primary passage that I want to talk to you about tonight is actually comes from Ephesians chapter 5. But I could not help this like pricking and this stirring and this pulling to give you an extra passage for free tonight. Like a, a little gold nugget that isn't, it's not the sermon. So it's not going to be structured like a sermon at all. It's just going to be a, I just have to share it with you because it's just this gold nugget that I've just been holding in my pocket for a little while. And I've just, I'm like, y'all got to know. So when I talked about Makai being the wife of my youth, that actually comes from Proverbs chapter five. 
Now, as you continue on through that passage, which I'm not going to read all the verses from that. You can read the rest on your own. <laughs> but from Proverbs chapter five, it, con- it continues in verse 19. And it says this, it says, be intoxicated. Hold up. He doesn't stop there. All of you <laughs> being intoxicated always in her love. And you're like, well, I don't like, I don't like that translation because that sounds worldly. And then my translation says captivated. Well, if you want to know what the word really means, it means to be led astray. So, or to err or to, to, to basically fall into things. And so, and so intoxicated really is kind of a generous way of talking about it, but nevertheless, be intoxicated always with her love. Now, why would I highlight, highlight that to you? Because I've learned something over the past several years and being in marriage ministry and being married and, and, and just walking with different couples. Here's the thing. When couples get together, typically when they start dating and engagement in the first little bit of marriage, there is this cocktail, if you will. Oh my, everything okay? All right, thumbs up. There is this cocktail of brain chemicals that's going crazy inside of most young couples' brains. And it's this, it's this mix. And there are other brain chemicals for all the scientists out there. Just give me, give me a break and just you'll, you'll feel me. But it's this mix of a chemical called dopamine and a chemical called oxytocin. Now, dopamine is known as the pleasure or the reward chemical, and oxytocin is known as the connection or the relation chem- relationship chemical. And so all of a sudden, you've got these two y- typically young people, and their brains are going crazy with these, with these brain chemicals of, of, again, the pleasure reward chemical and the connection relationship chemical. And you could almost say that they're not in their right mind. You could almost say that they are a little tipsy on I, I love maybe, but most likely infatuation, um, really feelings, a lot of feelings. Now, Here's the phenomenon, because there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It sounds like I might be hated on that. I'm not hated on that. That was such a wonderful time of life. Oh my goodness. I loved that time of life. But here's the thing. A lot of times what happens is that people get married and they get into the covenant, right? They say they get into the covenant and then all of a sudden those brain chemicals begin to go back to where they're supposed to be, to sober-mindedness, just normality. And then all of a sudden, like these young couples, they go, oh my gosh, I've fallen out of love. (laughs) When really it's just, I've fallen back into chemical balance. (laughs) Oh, I am sober-minded once again. Here's the thing. Now, why would I share that with you? You're like, I didn't come to church to hear a brain chemical lesson. The instruction here is to be intoxicated always with her love. And it's talking about the wife of your youth. The point of this passage, my friends, this is the principle of this passage from Proverbs chapter five, is that you are not allowed to let your spouse become old news. You see, here's the, here's the troublesome thing. Before we get married and we have those chem, all those chemicals going on, I would love to just tell all the young people just like, hey, sober up. It's not that easy. It's not that easy because when you're in it, you don't know you're in it. It's like, you're like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. I can drive. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, you can't. So this is my counsel to the, to the young people who are in that, in that time where the brain chemicals are going absolutely nuts. You know, either you're getting ready to get married or you're just married and you're thinking, this is love. And I'm going, 
Everyone who's been married longer than five seconds is going, <laughs> love. You wouldn't know love if it hit you in the face. Okay, sorry, that was too much of a digression. Here's the thing. This is what I would just counsel you toward, the, 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 those of you who are in that stage. Get some, get some people around you who are sober-minded, whose brains have come back into balance, who have walked in a, in a season of marriage and know what mature, sacrificial, self-giving love that doesn't have a whole lot to do with feelings. Get some of those minds around you so they can be the sober minds. They can be, as it were, your designated drivers. You feel me? Now, this is not at all, I'm, it makes it sound like, I'm not talking about alcohol, just feel me but I'm, help, I'm trying to help you understand something. Get some designated drivers around you, wise married people who can speak wisdom into you. And then here's the other thing. Here's the hardest part. Then obey them. Come on, come on, preach it, son. Whoa, I know that's a novel idea. And for the married folks, although those dopamine levels and oxytocin levels, they were once instinctual. Now they must become decisive for you. All you married folks, you are not allowed to lean on the excuse that your brain's not going crazy anymore. And so I just am not feeling it. See, it's the time when love becomes this, at first it's this overwhelming ocean that you really don't have a whole lot of control over. And then it becomes a garden that you have a choice to tend. And how you tend it will be how you bear fruit in it. You tend the garden of love and that includes brain chemistry. Now this, this very wise couple in my life, Dave and Marla Schaff, they said, hey, we're gonna give you a heads up. When the dopamine starts to settle down, there are ways that you can cultivate the restoration of dopamine. Oh my gosh, what? That's crazy. I want to know the secret. There's also ways to, to make oxytocin and sugar as well. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. Not a lot about that. But you can, here's the thing. They said, this is the combination that we have found in their studies. And, and Dave and Marla Schaff have studied marriage for years. It's something that if you can get something surprising and something that's positive. It's not super deep, right? It's something that's surprising and something that's positive. You want to tend the garden of love in your marriage and you want to keep that intoxication flowing. Not bad, good intoxication. Instructed from the Bible intoxication, mind you. You can tend the garden with surprising, positive things in your spouse's life. Isn't that, isn't that nice? Isn't that simple? Oxytocin releases are even simpler. Hug your spouse for 30 seconds and all of a sudden oxytocin will start to flow. Isn't that neat? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's the nugget. That was for free. That was not the sermon. I just felt like I had to share that with you because it's been such a gift in my marriage. You're welcome. Okay. Now for Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter written by the apostle Paul, by the hand of the apostle Paul breathe from God himself. Amen. 
It's a letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus is pretty cool because instead of like a lot of Paul's letters where he's coming and just kind of going, swap, he's like, y'all are nuts. Y'all need to get in line. No, he doesn't do it like that, but he does kind of. There's some sharp rebuke in, in First Corinthians, let me tell you. He actually is coming with this kind of encouraging word about like, he goes deep in Ephesians. He's like, these are the profound eternal purposes of the church. This is what it means, both in this life and the life to come, the church. And here's this mystery of Christ and the church and how they interrelate. And this is the new life. It's really cool. If you haven't read Ephesians, do it. Now, in the back half of of chapter four, in the first part of chapter five, Paul's talking about this new life in Christ. And he's basically juxtaposing what the old life, what the earthly life looks like and how different it looks to be in Christ. What does the life in Christ look like? And as he's talking about that, he continues right on as a part of that discussion, talking to wives and husbands and how they should conduct themselves. And that's where we're gonna start in verse 22. Buckle your seatbelts. The word of the Lord. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh, quiet in here. That's okay. I expected that. You see, this past January, we received a prophetic word regarding marriages and regarding relationships. And I actually want to read an excerpt from you. It was spoken by the mouth of Patrick Kitely, but we believe that this is a word of the Lord for this house. And I want to read it to you. It's so encouraging. It says this, there's an anointing in this house to restore families, to restore marriages, to restore relationships. One of the things I heard last night as I was preaching was this, any marriages that are in this house right now that are going through a difficult season and the enemy wants to pull it apart, God says, I'm bringing things back together. I'm bringing marriages back together. Imagine we declared that this is a cancer-free zone. What if we also declare in the spirit, this is a divorce-free zone. And so we break that spirit of divorce. I say, yes, Lord. But as I was thinking this week and reflecting on that word, I was going, God, what what does it look like? What does it mean for Heart of the City to be a divorce-free zone? 
And I believe that there's a few pieces to it, but where I want to start is what it doesn't look like. What a divorce-free zone at Heart of the City doesn't look like is if you are divorced, that you are seen as damaged goods or you are seen as an outcast or you are looked down upon or that you, not can, that you cannot be used in a mighty powerful way for the kingdom of God. Hear my heart, if you are divorced and you're in the house tonight or you're watching online, this is the exactly the place that you should be. And we are so, so glad that you are here because our God is the God who heals. He's the God who restores. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who renews. Do you feel me? And if you are divorced, that is not the final word over your life in Jesus' name. And there is still so much more that God has for you. That's part one. What does a divorce-free zone look like? How, how would that take place? Well, first of all, we actually do believe in Holy Spirit empowerment. We do believe that God intervenes in our lives, that God brings supernatural grace and that he wants to bring a supernatural grace to the marriages of this house, as well as those who will be married in order to live out healthy, strong marriages. So number one, it's Holy Spirit empowerment. It's God bringing the grace. We can't earn it. We can't make it happen. There's a grace there. Number two, you might've heard Patrick say, we break that spirit of divorce. We believe that there are unclean spirits that try to influence our lives. I know that might sound a little bit spooky, but hey guys, just read the New Testament. There are unclean spirits. And what we also believe in our standing on is that when that word was released, that the unclean spirit of divorce was broken in this house. That it doesn't have to continue anymore. Third, God has a part and we have a part. God brings the miracle. God brings the grace. God empowers, but we still have to respond we still have to respond in obedience. There is a part for us to play. And I want to talk to you about that because I believe that the word of God actually gives some really beautiful instruction on what part we are to, we are to play in that work. So we're going to start with the super comfy, super cozy, super make everybody feel warm and not awkward in the room part of the scriptures. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. It's funny, I haven't seen a lot of tattoos of this scripture. Not yet. I, uh, not, not a whole lot of encouraging social media graphics. Wives, big, nice, curly font. Submit to your own husbands. Ask to the Lord. And it's kind of flashing and moving in the background with an ocean. Wow, that really encouraged me this morning. I'm not sure it's ever been you version's verse of the day. just hits different first thing in the morning. 
Obviously, I'm joking. But I do think we need to have a heart-to-heart about this. Are you offended by these verses? That was more unified than I was expecting. Have you found yourself trying to ignore them or explain them away? Thank you for your honesty. Honestly, there was a time in my life when I did that because I was extremely uncomfortable with this idea. Wives submitting to husbands doesn't exactly jive with a postmodern worldview. Fair enough? In fact, there are several passages in the New Testament that if we take them seriously and live by them, we will be hated. That one wasn't a joke. That was a promise from Jesus. It's okay to laugh though. So I came to this place where I, I started asking myself, what, what do I believe the Bible to be? Because there's a lot of these things that are making me uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And I have to kind of come to grips with what do I think about this thing? This process led me to a crossroads where I had to decide whether I believed that this was an ancient collection of documents containing helpful but fallible wisdom on life or... I believe that this was the word of the living God. Now, if I believe the former, I could treat it like any other book and just chew the meat and spit out the bones as I saw fit. But if I believe the latter, if these words were God-breathed by the creator of the universe and the master of everything, then my only reasonable response was to place them on the throne of my heart and say, I will do whatever you say, uncomfortable or not. Now you might be thinking, Seth, is this, is this a sermon on, on marriage or is it on the authority of scripture? Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> Good, I like that. I wasn't gonna say that, but that's even better. I should write that for tomorrow. It is a message about marriage, but although it is a profound mystery, marriage is a symbol of Christ and his church. And for that relation, hear me, because you might not, may not get as much positive response on this one. For that relationship to be healthy, Christ and the church, there is a proper order to it. And the roles are not interchangeable. Christ and the church Imagine if we tried to interchange those. And so in marriage, there is an order. And the roles are not interchangeable. I'm just kidding. Okay. Part of that order is that wives are to submit to husbands. What does that mean? And what does submission look like in marriage? Okay, Ephesians tells us that it looks like this. Ephesians tells us it looks like what the church does toward Christ. Because just as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the symbol of Christ in marriage and the wife is the symbol of the church and the wife is instructed to submit to the husband as, meaning in a similar way, as the church submits to Christ. Wow, that was more amens than I was expecting. I got a true and a come on. Woo, I'm feeling encouraged, church. Thank you. Wow. 
Let's continue. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot. I love this. Oh my gosh. Without spot or, that was me interjecting that not the scripture, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Here's the thing. I don't usually get as much pushback on this part. Doesn't seem to ruffle as many feathers. Why is it easier to accept? Maybe it's because we don't understand the weight of the charge that is given in that passage. First of all, husbands are charged to agape, or agapate would be the the actual conjugation, but we're not going to get into grammar. Husbands are charged to agape their wives, which is the highest word for love in the Greek language, rooted in the idea of, get this, preferring someone else. Wait, what? It communicates self-sacrifice, giving without considering anything in return, and willing and acting upon the absolute good for the absolute good of another person. Seth, what does this kind of love look like? Well, for Jesus, it looked like giving himself up for his church. And here's the thing, y'all. He didn't wait for the church to clean up her act. He didn't wait for the church to submit to him. There is an order. Jesus did not wait for the church to submit to him. He didn't even wait for the church to form. He was the initiator. And he initiated with self-giving sacrificial love, but it was not just in his death that he showed this love. In his life on earth, he was a servant, he was humble, he was lowly, and he washed the feet of the people who were following him. So wives, maybe some of you are uncomfortable with the idea of submitting to your husbands, but is it a burden to submit to this kind of leader? Is it a burden to submit to a humble servant? Is it a burden to submit to a foot washer? To one who lays his life down for you. See, leadership in the world is often marked by self-importance, arrogance, and dominance. But not so in the kingdom of God. Leadership in the kingdom gives first, serves first, sacrifices first, loves first. So I ask you husbands who have a complaint about your wife's submissiveness or about your wife's respect for you, if that is a little bit easier for you to digest. Are you leading like Christ? Are you leading like the world? Are you leading at all? Yeah, the order I'm talking about does include a wife submitting, but it begins with a husband leading in love. Begins. 
Many of you husbands might respond, Seth, we got this covered, let me tell you. <laughs> See, I would die for my wife. But would you live for her? Would you die to yourself? And live out the humble servant leader life to such an extent that it would be her delight to follow your lead. Her delight. Is that how you lead husbands? that it would be your wife's delight to follow your lead. It is my, such my delight to submit to Christ. I'm gonna leave that there. I would submit to you that what is broken in marriages of our culture is not God's word. It's not God's design. And it's not God's order that is broken. It is our sinful distortion of or rebellion against those things. Have you considered the idea that the idea of a wife submitting to a husband is so offensive to our sensibilities because so many husbands never grow up and learn how to live for anything but themselves? Have you considered that when God created man and woman that the differences between them were actually more profound than the physical? Not as many amens. That's okay. We'll keep moving. Here's one. This one might get, get even less. Who told you that the one who is leading or making the final decision is of more value or worth? Who told you that? It reminds me of God walking through the garden. He's, who told you you were naked? Who told you that the one who is making the final decision is of more value or more worth? Is that an idea from heaven or from hell? Because it sounds a lot like a certain serpent that I remember. Okay. Have you considered that the inherent differences between husband and wife are beautiful and redemptive? and are part of a bigger story that God is declaring to all of creation, a profound mystery even, Christ and his church. <laughs> and you thought your marriage was about you. Wrong-o. Now, Seth, this is such an oversimplification. Oh my gosh, you totally missed the boat. Not every problem in marriage boils down to the concept of love and respect and the roles of husbands and wives. And hey, I get it. You can always poke holes in a message. I recognize that there are situations. Look, there are situations that some of you have been through where you're like, Seth, you don't. No. And you're right. I don't. And when we, when we, when we start moving into topics, when we start moving into, into scenarios that have to do with sexual immorality and physical abuse and abandonment, the conversation changes. And that's not lost on me. Please don't, please don't hear that. Please don't think that, oh, Seth doesn't understand that. No, I, I get that there are situations. And if you're struggling in your marriage, please do not hear what I'm not saying. 
get help. We want to help you reach out. We're not asking you to tough it out and pull it yourself up by your bootstraps. We have an amazing marriage ministry led by these two people right here, Dave and Jelaine Carlson, who led us in our first uh, marriage retreat ever in this past February, and actually who just led a pre-marriage intensive today here in this building. And we did not plan the topics like this. So if, if you're struggling, reach out, please. Reach out to somebody. I'm not saying that we have all the answers. I'm just saying, reach out to somebody. Don't think that, that this message is like, oh, I just gotta keep this to myself because, because I just have to do my part and just, no, look, there, there is a time and a place to get help, to get wisdom. But I do wanna submit this to every married person in the room. Almost every marriage problem that I have ever encountered in ministry or that I have heard of is rooted in the answer to this question. Who is on the throne of your heart? See, adultery ends a lot of marriages. Idolatry ends more. Adultery ends a lot of marriages, but idolatry ends more. You're going, idolatry. How could idolatry end a marriage? <laughs> How could idolatry end a marriage? The number one cause of divorce is not fights over sex or kids or money or anything like that. The number one cause of divorce is the worship of self. Number one. The number one cause of divorce is the worship of self. And the antidote for divorce in almost, hear me again, in almost every case is for both, both, because it takes two. I've seen what it's like when one jumps, when one does this, but it takes both husband and wife to get off the throne and get on the altar. Both. Not one pointing the finger at the other and going, well, you're not loving well, so you need to get on the altar. And the other one going, well, you're not being very respectful, so you get on the altar. No, two people saying, this marriage is so worth it that I am going to, let's jump up together. And we're both going to die daily. Two dead people get along great. 